There you go. Four punch, five punch, six punch combination. Body shot, body shot. Bang, 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 bang. Telling him not to counter punch. Welcome back, fight fans. This is episode 38 of the Fight City podcast. So happy to have you. I'm your host, Alden Kodash, being joined by the editor-in-chief of the Fight City. We got Michael Carbert with us. Enjoying another drink, Michael? I am. I am. I'm feeling good tonight. Uh, no fever, no chills, no coughing. How about you, Alden? 100%? Yep, but, I mean, you can't be sure until 14 days, but... <laughs> That's true. All, uh, all morbidity aside, we're going to do our best to try to focus on some of the hottest issues in the past month when we did have a boxing scene, back yes. when we had an NHL scene and an NBA scene and everything else that was still active. I mean, do you think we're going to even have the 2020 Olympics this year, Michael? <laughs> At this point, it doesn't look like it, does it? I, I think that's a valid concern. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, I think, uh, I mean, well, let, let me put it this way. There's, there is a light at the, at the end of the tunnel, as it was in the news that in China, they've shut down, um, I think, all of their temporary hospitals. Mm-hmm. So there is a light at the end of the tunnel, but for the rest of the world, it's, the, the, the difficulty is we don't know how long it's going to take to get to mm-hmm. that light. Um, yeah, it's, it, these are, these are stressful times. Um, and sports has to be a low priority right now. Yep. Uh, but at the same time, we're here to talk boxing. We are. And, uh, we'll start with Fury Wilder too, which unfortunately we didn't get a chance to talk about on the show prior to all the pandemic and hysteria that took place in the recent weeks but we'll take it back to long long time ago in a galaxy far far away without the coronavirus we had tyson fury pulling off a huge victory over deontay wilder in their victory in their rematch stopping him in the seventh round uh shocking a lot of people with his punching power under newfound trainer um javon sugar hill so you just got your first chance to watch it last night. Do I do I have that correctly? <laughs> well, yeah, I wasn't able to catch it live. Um, I did, you know, see some highlights and things, but I never really had a chance to sit down and devote my full attention to it. And um, so, you know, I have to say I was very impressed. Um, even though the fight was uh, quite one-sided, it was still an entertaining scrap. Uh, but I was just very impressed with uh, Tyson Fury's performance, especially in light of the fact that um, I, I picked Wilder to win. I I, mm-hmm. <clears throat> I did it as well. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I mean, I I spent a fair bit of time thinking about it. I looked at uh, Fury's most recent fight. I have to admit, I was influenced strongly by Wilder's big knockout over Luis Ortiz. Yeah. Um. I did not see that coming, and so to to finally be able to sit down and watch carefully Tyson Fury's performance, I mean, he it's 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 an impressive piece of work. Um, he basically came into the ring with a very gutsy strategy, and he made it work. He he right from the opening bell, he took charge. He was not intimidated at all um, in terms of Wilder's power. And he believed uh, wholeheartedly that the key to winning the fight was to put Wilder on the back foot and keep him there. And and it worked. I mean, Wilder, yeah. looked, Wilder looked very uncomfortable throughout pretty much the entire fight. And um, he, could, he just couldn't get anything going. And uh, meanwhile, Tyson Fury just seized the opportunity. He was the, he was the guy moving forward. He was getting off first. Um, he was taking advantage of, uh, Wilder's poor balance and footwork. Um, 
he's also imposing a lot of his size on Wilder. I mean, he came in significantly heavier than he did in the first fight, significantly heavier than he did in his last couple fights, and he just leaned on Wilder and really manhandled him on the inside, uh, which zapped a lot of the energy from Wilder, um, especially in the middle rounds towards the end. Yes, and and also that all that extra size and weight can help you to take punches too. Yeah. Um, Wilder did land some right hands, but they didn't seem to bother Fury very much. Yeah. And he he was the boss, uh, which was a big surprise to me. I mean, that's not what I expected at all. Um, and uh, he had Wilder looking for the right hand. And then uh, Fury switched it up and started throwing left hooks. The second knockdown was produced by left hands. Yeah. And uh, he was mixing up his shots, keeping Wilder backing up, and Deontay looked very confused. Um, I mean, he's I, never. I, I, I don't I, think he's ever hit the canvas before. He was in a whole new world in there. He's never he been was. on the receiving end of the predator-prey relationship inside the squared circle. And I and I have to ask uh, Alden, what did you think of Mark Braylon's decision to stop it? I mean, myself, like anybody else, you know, I wouldn't have doubted him stopping the fight a couple rounds before because of the state of Wilder's ear. You know, before we found out <clears throat> that Wilder, uh, the bleeding from his ear was from cuts inside his ear. You know, I thought he he burst his eardrum in the fight and then had such severe injuries towards. Uh, in, in his ear and in his general equilibrium that he was starting to bleed out there. I've never seen an injury like that before. So it kind of frightened me. And, you know, I, I don't think any sensible fight fan with, uh, you know, with any compassion towards the health and safety of the fighters really should have doubted that. I, I just look in disgust at guys like JDS, one of Wilder's assistant trainers, who, who seems more like a Wilder uh, hack in the fact that he was saying, you know, he, he wanted to talk to Breland after and you can never count a puncher like Wilder out. Which is true. I mean, I I'll admit I was on the edge of my of of my uh, I was on the edge of my seat watching Fury pursue Wilder with reckless abandon like that because you know I know wounded tigers can be dangerous, but at the same time Wilder was taking such a horrific beating in there and and the injuries he sustained were you know so so unorthodox in that sense. You know I saw Mickey Ward against Gaddy in the second fight stumbling everywhere after he burst his eardrum. It almost seemed like that. Plus, there was blood coming out. You know, I, I thought he made the right decision to answer your question, Mike. Well, the key thing for me is that um, it was it was Wilder's body language. I think, we, you know, whether Brayland consciously was w- would would admit to that or not. The key thing is that Wilder looked like a deer in the headlights. He looked lost. He looked yeah. bewildered. And when, when your fighter, uh, who normally is very confident, is a knockout artist, I think that, that Wilder was in a place where he really didn't know how to cope with the situation. Um, I wouldn't say that the punishment he'd, he'd taken up to that point was, was you know necessarily brutal. But I completely sympathize with Braylon's decision from the standpoint of my fighter is in a world of trouble and he doesn't seem to know how to deal with it. Yeah. And, um, and, and it, it raises interesting questions about the fact that, okay, it was a one-sided fight and Tyson Fury deserves enormous credit for, for implementing that, that gutsy strategy and making it work. But Wilder has pulled the trigger and is taking advantage of the rematch clause and we're going to see, I, if I understand correctly, we're going, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're going to see Fury Wilder 3 uh, in the summer. It's coming up. It's next. Neither man is going to fight somebody else. The, the yep. next name on both men's records is going to be each other. Yeah. That, no step aside I mean, money was, re- was taken. <laughs> well, it's a really interesting move, and, 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 and it causes me to think, okay, why, if I'm Deontay Wilder, why would I do that? Why would I say, you know what, I want him back. I want him next. And I can't help but think that it that it must be the realization that, you know, on a certain level, um, reversing the fortune, reversing the outcome, is as simple as being able 
to turn the tide and back Fury up. Whoever is on the back foot is the guy who's going to be vulnerable. And for six-plus rounds in the second fight, it was Wilder. Well, in the first fight, much of the time, it was Fury backing up. And he backing was up who, effectively, though. I mean, he was yes. still the ring general. Yes. But. And and I have to say, I'm always, uh, I mean, you look at a guy who's over 270 pounds and is that light on his feet, that mobile. I mean, that's that's very impressive. But, but I mean, it's, it's a very uh, brazen move on the part of Wilder to, to immediately say, I want him back. I want to. I want to. I want to see the third fight. We're going to do it next. Um, what do you make of it? Like, what, I, mean, I think it's. I, I. I do think it's a bad idea for Wilder because I, I just don't think he's as good of a fighter as Fury. After, you know, the 19 rounds we saw, or the 18 plus rounds we saw against each other, Fury beat him in every possible way, uh, in my opinion. Besides the two shots that he got hit with that put him down in the first fight, both of which he got up with and controlled the remainder of those rounds. Uh, but what I found very interesting going into this third fight is the amount of people that are trying to jump on the Wilder bandwagon. You had Joe Goosen, you had Floyd Mayweather, you know, wanting to train him and, and enact this fundamental reform in his technical shortcomings. You know, five months, first of all, is not going to be long enough to do that. Five months is not going to undo a career where people have exploited his unorthodox ability to make him into the heavyweight threat and knockout artist and uh, champion he was. And I really don't think there's a need right now to start from scratch or a, a realistic uh, end goal in terms of starting from scratch and making him into this new fighter. You know, I, I think there are That's, still things yeah. he can do as a flawed fighter that could bring out his best attributes, such as using the jab more often to the body and to the head. You know, he allowed Fury, and I'm not going to try to repeat my, <laughs> repeat Lennox Lewis here, uh, but he had a lot of success. He had jab a lot of success. Yep. <laughs> he had a lot of success in the first fight with the jab, particularly in the early rounds. He won a few of those rounds. He kept Fury occupied. He was landing very effectively. I didn't see that jab in the second fight, and he needs that to be able to not give up the role as the ring general. He doesn't need you know, to learn how to throw a left hook properly, you know, or, or throw or learn how to um, fight on the inside because, you know, he's made a living without that. His left hook, as sloppy as it is, has gotten world-class fighters in serious trouble. And uh, his infighting, as ineffective as it is, you know, he hasn't had to rely on that. So I, I don't I don't think five months is long enough. And I uh, I, I question that approach for bringing out Wilder. I think certain modifications can be made, but I don't think he needs an entire new makeover. Uh, and from the latest I hear, he's staying with Mark Breland uh, and his training team. So we'll see who they bring yeah. on, but I, I hope they don't try to make a new product out of Deontay Wilder. No, no, I, I can't, I can't imagine that that is the thinking. I mean, I mean, uh, we haven't heard Wilder say anything to that effect, correct? I don't think so. No, I mean, I mean, I'm sh that's that's why I'm really intrigued because the only way I can make sense of Wilder after getting, you know, I mean, suffering a, a, a catastrophic defeat. I mean, that was that was uh, completely one-sided. He didn't. I don't think he won a, a minute of any round. Um, so to to turn around and say. I'm going to uh, activate, uh, activate my my rematch clause. I want the, I want a third fight with Fury right away. It causes me to think that his his perspective on this is okay. On a certain level, it's simple. I have to go in right from the opening bell. I have to be the guy who's moving forward, and I have to knock this guy out. If not mm. in the first round, then in the second or third round. Like mm. I, I, like the that's the only way that I can make sense of it. And as a result, it's kind of exciting because I'm anticipating, you know, a real shootout. Like Tyson Fury predicted that the second fight would be a heavyweight Hagler Hearns. 
Well, what I'm thinking is that Wilder is looking at what happened in the second fight and thinking, okay, no, 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 no. I was backing up the whole time. That's not going to happen in the third fight. I am coming. I don't think he was backing up. I don't think he was backing up on purpose, though. I I think Fury just kept him occupied, and and Fury was fainting him out of position, jabbing him out of position, and well, but it was yeah. But it wasn't just Fury uh, fainting and jabbing. It was also Fury at every opportunity, right from the opening bell, was seizing ring center. He was taking the center of the ring, and then he was immediately imposing all two hundred and seventy plus pounds. And making Wilder back up. And Wilder cannot win a fight backing up. There's no way. He has he, he has no balance. He has no footwork. He has to be the one moving forward. And, um, I mean, it may sound a bit simplistic, but I really think that that's what it boils down to. Wilder needs to be uh, the hunter, not the hunted. It's the only way he can he can win. Um, he has to be stalking. He has to be moving forward and looking for the chance to land his big shot. He has and, to make himself believe that he's a hunter again, though. I mean, he's still going to be stepping into the ring against a guy that knocked him down twice, completely humiliated him, having had him stumbling around the ring. You know, this is a guy that's all about his image, all about coming out, telling people he wants a body on his record, claiming that the Bronze Bomber yeah. is 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 something else to be feared, etc. And now that image is in serious crisis. I mean, I, I would love to, 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 to see what it's like inside Wilder's head right now. I mean, he must be going through a million things, you know, and I think, I think, I think, I think the only thing he can do to regain, regain, uh, his, his self-confidence is to reverse the defeat in the second fight. But I'm not sure if he's going into the third fight with his wits behind him, really. I don't think he's in a proper state of mind going into this fight. I think he's trying to undo what happened more quickly than he's trying to really digest and understand why it happened and why, you know, things aren't going so well for him against a fighter of Fury's caliber. You know, what what he could have improved on in the first fight. It didn't really seem like he brought anything new into the second fight that he did not bring in the first fight. Well, you could be, you could be correct. I'm... I'm on. The, I I agree with you, but I guess I'm going the other the extra step and saying, okay, he must know something. He must feel that he can change something mm-hmm. in a third fight. Otherwise, why would he do this? But but you could be absolutely absolutely correct. Maybe it's not that at all. Maybe it's just um, bravado. Maybe it's just trying to save face. Uh, maybe it's just his pride, and he and and he's not really in a position to be able to to improve on what happened in the second fight but it, it's just fascinating it's a, it's a really interesting situation it'll be interesting to see if it actually does happen um maybe after a few weeks and while there's it, had- oh if it actually does happen because of uh covid19 yeah Oh, yeah, good point. Good point. <laughs> good I mean, point. besides that, I think it was uh, set in stone. It was on Dan Rayfield's calendar for, for July in Las Vegas. You know, I, I, I think um, you know, I, I think some contracts have been signed, but the big obstacle right now is the big obstacle to the sports world and coronavirus. But, um, well, I mean, fighters can always get out of uh, get out of a fight if they really, really want to. There's a million ways to do it. Yeah. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if, if, you know, going along what you just said, I mean, if Wilder calms down uh, after a few weeks, cooler heads prevail, etc., and maybe he takes your point of view and, and realizes, you know, okay, I need to do some rethinking and some rebuilding and assess where I'm at, um, you know, that could easily happen. Uh, again, what I'm what I'm getting at is assuming that he does he is moving forward based on something what would it be the only thing that i can think of is that he's looking back and thinking all right i just have to be more assertive i have to make sure that when the bell rings it's not tyson fury marching forward and seizing ring center and imposing his will it's me i have to be the one doing it yeah, and I'm just anticipating that if he is thinking that way and he does execute that kind of game plan, we could be in for something really explosive and entertaining in a third fight. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, you also another perspective to capture is that Wilder made the decision to exercise the rematch clause in the midst of you know his excuse-ridden trail that consisted oh, of God. you know my forty-pound costume. Uh, what else? Help me out here, Michael. <laughs> it was almost it was almost too absurd. You know he had no energy coming into the fight. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. It was it was it was somewhat promulgated by him, somewhat promulgated by some of his most avid supporters. But you know, really, I, I think a, a point could be made that Wilder was in denial when he exercised the rematch clause. Maybe uh, in opposition to better judgment to take a step back. But also from the financial perspective, I mean, Wilder, you know, he's getting older. He's older than Fury. He didn't really have presumably too much fights left, too much uh, tread left on his tires. So, I mean, it's a lot of money to take the third fight. Vice, take a risk in an interim and, and maybe uh, and maybe suffer another defeat or some adversity that can get in the way of the third fight while Fury uh, marches towards an Anthony Joshua mega fight. Well, it's it's an interesting point. It's actually a, an important point that, I mean, we immediately after the fight, we uh, published three things on the website, um, including your report. And uh, and then Ralph Semyon, who is a, a, a columnist for, for the website, mm-hmm. um, in his take, he pointed out that he feels there was something off with Wilder. Wilder yeah. was not. 100%. Many people think that, yeah. Yeah, and um and that and more than one person apparently looking at uh um Wilder in his dressing room before the fight. And of course they had a camera in there. Mm-hmm. He didn't he didn't look his usual self. He didn't seem composed. He didn't he didn't look confident. I mean, that might be another factor in his saying Hey, I want the third fight right away. Maybe he knows something that the rest of us don't about his situation emotionally, psychologically, whatever. Maybe something was off. There's also the factor that, correct me if I'm wrong, he never had weighed in so heavy for a fight. Um, I'm not sure what what that might point to. Um, there's there's some really there, there it's a there. There are a number of factors here that suggest that there's a backstory to all of this that the public is not aware of that could mm-hmm. be at play in how the second fight, you know, the outcome of the second fight and what may happen in the future. Bottom line is it's just refreshing to finally see how long has it been to finally see an actual intriguing rivalry unfolding in the heavyweight division we've had two fights and i don't know about you alden but i'm looking forward to a third and this is actually a very interesting chapter in heavyweight boxing history and we haven't had this kind of thing for quite a while we haven't had many trilogies for quite a while come to think of it boxing world is becoming very rematch averse People are kind of under the mentality that, you know, it's on to the next one, on to the bigger thing, on to the next unification, belts, 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 and they lose touch on some of these rivalries that really define the sport. Um, you know, and we'll talk later on the show about Julio Cesar Chavez and Meldrick Taylor, which could have been a classic rivalry as if it wasn't for the tragic events that pursued in Taylor's life and career after the fight. Uh, but, but first, let's go on to another fighter, who successfully rebounded from a catastrophic defeat. And of course, I'm talking about the Fight City's decade, fighter of the decade, Roman Chocolatito Gonzalez, who regained the IBF. Uh, let me just make sure I got this correctly. He regained the WBA super flyweight title against Khalid Yafai on the undercard of Mikey Garcia and Jesse Vargas um, the, the week after Wilder and Fury, and really looked sensational doing it. And uh, he's just reinserted himself back into the 115-pound picture that people really thought he had no business being in after uh, Sor Rungvisai knocked him out a couple years back. What did you make of that, Michael? Well, I, I was very happy uh, because, um, you know, Chocolatito is a, is a feel-good story. He's a classy guy. He's a l- very likable individual. 
um, a classy sportsman. He always uh, goes to his opponent, much like his um, his uh, the, the man he looked up to, uh, Alexis Arguello, his countryman. Yeah. Um, Arguello was always uh, that type of sportsman, and um, and Roman Gonzalez uh, follows in his footsteps, and that's refreshing. Um, I'm, I'm sure I'm not alone when I say that that I like that. I like to see a fighter uh, be a good sportsman. Yeah, uh, we don't he, have enough it, of that these days. <laughs> yeah, like he's not interested in trash talk. He's not interested in insulting his opponent or any of that stuff. He's, uh, but at the same time, when the bell rings, he's he's a warrior. Yeah. And, um, and he's one of the best fighters of recent years. Uh, Lee Wiley, um, uh, the astute ana- analyst who uh, the fightcity.com is very proud to feature. Mm. Uh, he points to him as as one of the finest uh, infighters of, of recent years. Yeah. Um, the Art of Moving by Lee Wiley. We're yeah. Seeing, uh, kudos yeah. on HBO pay-per-view by Jim Lampley even. Recommend yes. anybody who hasn't seen it to check it out. Yes, yes, we refeatured it after after uh, Gonzalez's great great win, mm-hmm. and Chocolatito, by the way, uh, went out of his way to thank Lee Wiley hmm. uh, for making that video uh, on social media. Um, uh, no, I, it made me happy. It made I, I was a bit surprised. I was anticipating that maybe uh, Chocolatito's uh, age and and wear and tear would would show. Instead, he seemed to be refreshed. Um, he seems to have really uh, rebounded, re- regrouped, and and rebounded, and and is looking sharp. And um, again, it's a feel good story. Uh, and and if I may, it. It only bolsters the claim of myself and the FightCity.com that Roman Chocolatito Gonzalez is, is in fact, the fighter of the decade. Mm. Um, I laid my case out in the article that we published on the website. I feel strongly that uh, that, that is the case. He, is, he, he deserves more than any other professional prize fighter to be hailed as the fighter of the decade. And, um, and it doesn't matter that uh, he lost by knockout in the rematch to Swissakats or Rungvizai. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. You're um, saying it exactly correctly, Michael. <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you. Uh, <laughs> you know, th- that, that, that shouldn't count against him. Um, he, he is naturally fighting guys. He is fighting opponents now who are naturally bigger than him, heavier and bigger. Um, he's getting on in years. I think he's what, 32 or 33, 32 Uh, years old. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, for, for a flyweight, that's getting up there. I mean, he's, he's a senior citizen in terms of, of, uh, (laughs) these days, Manny Pacquiao, notwithstanding. Um, so, you know, I mean, uh, he had a, a, a stupendous decade and he is the fighter of the decade and this victory just goes to show it, it adds to his legacy he is um there are a few fighters that we can point to that are active or recently active and say you know what these guys are all-time greats there's not that many uh, manny pacquiao is obviously one of them floyd mayweather Saul canelo alvarez there's a few others we can point to these fighters and say these guys deserve consideration in terms of the whole history of the sport, they are greats. Uh, but number one in recent years for me is Roman Chocolatito Gonzalez, and um, this win just bolsters that case. So um, he had a real sense. illustrious career under the radar, as many fighters in these lower weight divisions tend to. You know, he only arrived on the HBO scene what 2012, maybe 2013. Remember him being on the undercard of a couple triple G fights and people just being blown away. The people that haven't followed him on obscure networks or YouTube, just thinking, where has this guy been? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and you know, in, in a way this Renaissance, you know, this kind of just popped up in my head. So bear with me if I'm a little iffy on the facts, but this kind of reminds me of the great Edder Joffrey, you know, one of the greatest lower weight division fighters of all time dropped a couple fights to fighting Harada. And then seven years later, 
he comes back and he wins the featherweight championship of the world in the next decade. You know, yeah. so greatness, it, it, it really, it really, uh, it really tends to resurface when you're, <laughs> when you're least thinking about it sometimes because of, uh, the quality and the professionalism of Roman Chocolatito Gonzalez. You know, I think, uh, the way that the fight fans are, are trained to think these days is sometimes to, to write off fighters from a loss too quickly. And a lot of people did that after he lost to Srisakat Sorong Visai and completely forgot about what he brings into the ring in terms of his finesse and artisanship and ring generalship. Uh, and a lot of people were caught extremely by surprise in terms of what he did to the undefeated Cal Yafai. Um, and, you know, I think it is, I'm not going to say that he has another five, six years ahead of him. Uh, you know, he still did show some signs of age. He wasn't as quick as he was in previous fights, especially at 112. But I think he's rightfully earned himself another shot at uh, El Gallo Estrada, for example, or maybe even a third fight with Sorong Visay. Although I'd really like to see him fight Estrada again because their first fight was sensational. And yes. You know, quite frankly, if Sorungvisai still has anything left, and that's a big if, you know, I think he's still just a little too big and too strong for a guy like like Chocolatito, who uh, still arguably shouldn't be at 115. Credit for him for sticking around and uh, regaining a title. Yeah, how about this scenario? Uh, we get Estrada versus uh, Chocolatito 2. It's yep. another fantastic fight. Estrada wins a close decision. And then, then we get a third fight. We get a trilogy fight. It's <laughs> uh, Both men get career-high paydays. It's another fantastic fight. I don't know who wins it. And then they both ride off into the sunset. I think, I, that's what I would like to see. I think that could definitely happen in the lower weight divisions because, uh, you know, the, the spotlight is off with is off them a little more and and they have more ambition to fight for their legacy than they do for the money and they have an opportunity to fight more frequently than some of the guys do in the higher weight divisions that get a lot more notoriety uh el gallo estrada one of the best pound for pound fighters in the world you know this would be a tremendous tremendous fight uh it's almost getting me excited to think about right now so. yes yeah you know have I, the fight I, in I singapore singapore has their COVID 19 <laughs> Uh, number of cases under control, se seemingly. So, uh, maybe I spoke yeah. too quickly, but <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. Let's let's hope that. Uh, well, that's another topic. Obviously, we all hope that this clears up and we can see these great fights sooner than later. Yeah, I mean, one fifteen. Um, you know, one of the best fighters at one fifteen has recently moved up to one eighteen. We're talking about Naoya Inouye. But, you know, it's still the stone, uh, the, the solid, uh, extremely competitive division, more or less than it was a few years back when we had the Superfly uh, triple headers on HBO. You know, it's still a very good division. Three Sket Soaring Visai, we haven't seen a little from him since his last defeat to El Gallo Estrada. But, you know, seemingly uh, still in the mix. He's fighting Amnot Ruinrong. And we also have Kazuto right. Ioka who is an excellent fighter, and I would love to see him against Chocolatito or Gaio Estrada. He also has a belt. Kazuto Ioka um, would be a terrific fight. Uh, huh. So, speaking of rivalries and speaking of terrific fights, we will talk about Chavez Taylor because it's going to be the 30-year anniversary of such on can't Tuesday, believe. March 17th, 30 years ago. <laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't born... Um, but you were, <laughs> and I'm <laughs> yeah. and I'm sure that you recall that fight. I'm hoping you watched it live. Well, I don't because... recall it well uh, because I wasn't <laughs> very old yet, uh, <laughs> uh, so I don't recall it terribly well. But yeah, I mean, uh, one of the great fights. I mean, it's it's one of the great fights in boxing history. So. It's my favorite okay. fight in boxing history. I'll just go out and say that. Really? <laughs> it is my favorite. It's better than Corrales Castillo won. You know, I when when Dan Rayfield posted on Twitter, that's his greatest fa favorite fight of all time. You know, I'm always the first to say, you know, great fight. Chavez Taylor is my favorite, and then uh, Prior Arguello won close second. But <laughs> I'm kind of nostalgic in that sense. Maybe the well, quality of action was a little higher. 
That's fascinating to me. I find it interesting that your your favorite fight of all time is a fight that took place before you were born. Yeah. Um, uh, my favorite fight of all time, and this won't be a surprise to anyone who visits the website regularly, is of course the first clash between Roberto Duran and Sugar Ray Leonard. Mm. That for me is is. Uh, a candidate for the greatest fight of all time, bar none. The brawl and, in Montreal. Uh, yeah, the brawl in Montreal. I remember it well. I was very young, um, but I'm old enough to remember what a massive event it was. Um, and uh, but Chavez Taylor won, while it did not have the same kind of. It, it didn't cross over. It didn't transcend the sport. It wasn't. It wasn't a super fight, um, like say, like the Leonard Duran, Leonard Hearns fights, uh, yeah. like Frazier. Um, but everybody in boxing knew that this was going to be a fantastic fight, oh. and and everyone in Mexico couldn't wait to see it. Um, we we have two stories uh, that'll be published on the on the site. One is a, just a basic look back at the fight itself, but then the other story is uh, by our regular contributor Rafael Garcia, mm-hmm. who comes from Mexico and he has very a very vivid memory of being a child and seeing that fight with his father, mm. and that's a really interesting take. Because, of course, that fight meant so much uh, to Mexican uh, sports fans. Um, it's a great, great fight. It's a, it's an historic fight. Um, you know, you bring up a brawl in Montreal. The fight has a lot of similarities stylistically to it. In a way, yes, you're right. You're right. Uh, you saw a guy who fought the wrong fight and did it very well, but ultimately paid the price. You know, maybe the, the, the manner of the fight wasn't carried in the same way, but you saw a guy like Melchior Taylor, who really had no business fighting punch for punch with Chavez, still doing so and still, you know, carrying his own for much of the fight. Just well, like Ray Leonard did against Roberto Duran. <laughs> well, I got to stop you right there because the Duran uh, contingent will argue, no, that's not the case. Sugar Ray Leonard fought his normal fight (laughs) and you know what they have a point if you go back and look at some of sugar ray leonard's uh fights when he was coming up through the welterweight division and by the way his run as a young pro through the welterweight division which culminated in his title winning fight against wilfred benitez in 19 november of 1979 Mm -hmm. i mean he was a destroyer um I would I would especially bring to anyone's attention uh, who doubts that his performance against against uh, Pete Ranzani. Mm. I mean, he he just took that guy apart. Or Andy Price, Andy Price, who some hailed as the uncrowned welterweight champion because he had defeated Pepino Cuevas mm. and never got a rematch, and Leonard destroyed him in one round. You know, his old trainer, Pepe Correa, said he used to have to bring in middleweights and light heavyweights to spar with them, and he'd be knocking them out, too. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean... scary puncher. Yeah, Sugar Ray Leonard... Sugar Ray Leonard had a... definitely had a killer instinct. And he... Another one, his knockout over Davy Boy Green. Scary knockout. Yeah, a scary... Absolutely. He's knocked out standing up. You know, just (laughs) motionless falling to the canvas. Exactly, exactly. So so Leonard had killer instinct, he had power, he had speed, but at the same time, he knew how to box, and everybody knew that he knew how to box. And so, I mean, we're supposed to be talking about Chavez Taylor, but let's indulge this for a second. Uh, the the build-up to Duran Leonard was absolutely massive. It transcended boxing. It, it uh, I mean, to put it in perspective, a lot of people don't realize this, but, you know, Venues like Madison Square Garden sold out for the closed circuit telecast of the That's first amazing. fight. Yes, and uh, all major, every major American city had major arenas sell out for the closed circuit telecast of Duran Leonard. It was wow. massive, and um, 
but the pre-fight anticipation of the of the pundits of the analysts was that and this is a, this is in tribute to Duran and his ability was that Leonard had to box him that if Leonard went into the trenches with Duran that was not a smart move because Roberto Duran is a fearsome fearsome fighter powerful ruthless he Leonard had the box that's saying and a lot course, for a guy that was moving up from 135 absolutely 47 absolutely but but Leonard didn't do that and um, and of course the debate is did Leonard not do that because he chose to to go toe to toe with Duran or is it because Duran imposed his will and uh, it's it's a not it's an unending debate I tend to think that it's a bit of both um, I think both fighters turned in arguably, you know, definitely the very best performances of their careers. Um, uh, and, and it resulted in an absolute classic 15 round war. And it was very close. It was a very close fight. I think Duran edged it. He, he rightfully got the decision, but, uh, yeah. So, so to circle around, um, did Meldrick Taylor fight the wrong fight against Julio Cesar Chavez? It's, an, it's sh- a very tough question to say because, you know, yes. if you watch this fight against Buddy McGirt, Meldrick was never, he was, he was, he was never content with being on his toes and, and fighting in that manner. Uh, he was, he was a destroyer. He was a rough and tumble uh, shoe shine type fighter with a lot of power. And what makes it very interesting very similar to the Duran-Leonard fight, is that you had the stalker, the puncher, the dangerous fighter, being relatively new to 140, and that's Chavez. You know, Chavez worked his way up from 130, 135, you know, beating all the opposition, uh, won a title at 140 against Roger Mayweather, but was still relatively new to the division, and Meldrick Taylor was seemingly the much bigger guy. However, you know, Chavez's punches as Richard Steele put it, you know, these are punches that could break bones and we're having a visible effect of, on Meldrick Taylor throughout the rounds. Uh, but Taylor kept coming. Yeah. Well, the, the key thing to remember about Taylor, I think is that s- similar to Leonard to Ray Leonard and, and what people understood about him, everybody knew that Meldrick Taylor could box. Uh, he had the speed, he had the mobility, he could box if he wanted to, but in his heart, he was a Philly fighter. Yep. And apparently... Too much the, of a Philadelphia fighter. Yeah, he was, he was a Philly fighter. He loved to fight. He loved to go toe-to-toe. The story is that they had to chase him out of the ring in the gym. He loved to spar. He loved to rumble. And Lou Duva and George Benton, who were uh, Taylor's uh, in Taylor's corner for that fight, they, they got a hell of a lot of criticism for the fact that as the fight unfolded and into the final round, before the bell rang for round 12, they actually instructed Taylor to keep uh, close, to keep rumbling, to, to not to move, not to stay away, not to play it safe. They actually did the opposite. They told him, keep doing what you're doing. Go after him. Well, not and, if you would have asked uh, Lou Duva after the fight. Rest in peace. <laughs> he recalls well, a much different story. <laughs> well... I mean, although the tape doesn't lie. So. Yeah, I don't know if it's up for debate. I mean, it's not. I think, I think, <laughs> it's a well, joke. I think they, they were telling Taylor what they were, what they wanted was they wanted Taylor, if possible, to take the initiative away from Chavez. Yeah. And to keep doing what was working, or what had been working for most of the fight, which was yep. that Taylor's speed and Taylor's activity was taking the play away from Chavez for most of the fight. Um, I mean, you can go either way. There's logic either way. I mean, uh, Angelo Dundee, before the first uh, Duran-Leonard fight, uh, we're making some really interesting connections here, He he's on record as saying, Duran's a heel-toe guy. He takes two steps to come to you. The key is, you don't give him the two steps. You don't back away and let him have the momentum coming forward. So there's a logic there that you would tell Taylor, okay, stay with him. Don't let him get the momentum. Uh, Instead, try and take the play from him. Uh, Try and blunt his attack. 
similarly, I always felt that uh, in the last round of that, that memorable fight, John Tate versus Mike Weaver, yeah. uh, 1979 WBA heavyweight title. That's right. Weaver's way behind on points. But in the last round, Tate makes the mistake of backing away. He knows he's, he knows he's well ahead on points. All he has to do is make it to the final bell. He's got the decision. But and he's by got a fight back, with Muhammad Ali. <laughs> exactly. But by backing away and trying to stay away from Weaver, he actually gives Weaver the opportunity to come forward and get the momentum going so that he can get an attack going. And it cost him. And Weaver won by knockout in the last seconds of the round, last seconds of the fight. Yeah. I mean, so so I'm not trying to disparage Lou Duva or George Benton, but my but in the final round of that great fight, Meldrick Taylor didn't try to stay away. He was a fully fight, uh, sorry, a Philly fighter right to the end. Yep. And as a result, Chavez had the opportunity to land that big right hand. Well, it was interesting watching Chavez in the last round. He was so he didn't he wasn't. I mean, they were commenting about this at ringside. He wasn't fighting like a fighter that was behind on points. He was fighting like a guy who was on his toes, just you know, calmly waiting for Taylor to give him the opportunity that he eventually did, and was just picking him apart. But I I do criticize Georgie Benton and and Lou Duva for their advice because not because it wasn't working earlier in the fight, but because Taylor was just collapsing in front of them. He was hardly able to uh, keep his balance for a full round as evidenced in the, in the 11th round. The 10th round was really the beginning of the end for him and his face obviously told the tale, you know, so, and I think being within punching range from Chavez is, is not going to help the case, especially when Chavez knows he needs a knockout to win. Uh, I don't think Taylor was in physical condition to fight his normal fight in the last round. Uh, and I, I think that's ultimately what, what got to him. But also another point is that one judge did have Chavez ahead. And and that, you know, Chuck Jampa might not be the best scorecard in the world, but it wasn't as lopsided, in my, in my opinion, as a lot of people, including, especially including the HBO commentators, were making it out to be. You know, I thought Chavez won three, four rounds going into the last round. There were some early rounds that he won. He was landing the cleaner shots. He wasn't landing as many shots, but there were definitely more impactful shots. And he was also showcasing a very good defense. You know, I mean, Taylor, you know, he would land three out of 10 punches, but the fact that Chavez was making a miss seven out of 10 punches that were that quick and uh, in series with one another, you know, I think that's something that's very underestimated in Chavez and how he was able to just control the inside and just pick Taylor apart over time. Although he wasn't being very flashy in doing it, he was clearly the one that got the last say. So, you know, there's a lot that could be said of that performance uh, that many people overlook because of the, the events and the controversy that it resulted. Well, I think you make a very good point. I would agree with you. The fight was highly competitive. It was not a, a route uh, on the part of Meldrick Taylor. Having said that, there's also no doubt in my mind that he was ahead. Yeah. Um, and as that final round, you know, drew to its conclusion, there was every reason to believe that when the bell rang, Meldrick Taylor deserved to get a close decision win um, over Julio Cesar Chavez. Yeah. But of course, that didn't happen. And um, and here's where I know you and I disagree. <laughs> and, it, and it should be noted for our listeners that you, in fact, are a referee. You are a boxing referee. I am not. Um, but I, I strongly disagree with Richard Steele's decision to stop the fight. Um, I will go to my grave um, arguing that that's one of the worst calls in boxing history. Um, and, and I want to point out that I want to point out that, that now 30 years later, what's happening in boxing, uh, bolsters my case. Now we're seeing referees like Jack Reese, uh, when a fighter gets knocked down, they get up, he wipes their gloves and then he asks them to actually walk two or three steps over 
and 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 then turn around and then do a little dance and you know come <laughs> over here and come over there that also has okay. its own controversy associated with it but <laughs> yeah well i mean all richard Steele had to do was wipe off meldrick taylor's gloves and the bell would have rang and call me crazy but a world champion who has just turned in such a gutsy and no- noble performance as meldrick taylor did and who beat the count with room to spare he was up at the count of six call me crazy but i think he deserves that chance i think he deserves a couple extra seconds of assessment from the referee in which case the bell rings and the referee has not decided the outcome instead it goes to the judges scorecards I just think it's a damn shame that the fight ended the way it did, and it didn't have to end that way. And I will always hold this against Richard Steele. I don't care what anybody says. There was there was a lot going on in those final seconds. I think we can all agree on that. You had Lou Duva on the ring apron doing God knows what. You had the 10-second uh, alarm, the, the, the blinking red light behind Meldrick Taylor. You had the crowd going crazy. Uh, you had Taylor you know, not paying attention to Richard Steele, which is probably his strongest case for stopping the fight, uh, which he which he states was one of the proudest decisions he's ever made. Um, and, you know, he... The one thing I give credit to Richard Steele for doing is that he put the whole event aside and just made a straightforward, objective decision. This guy is not responding. This guy looks like hell. This guy is holding himself up. He can't go on. I don't care how much time is left. I don't know how much time is left. I'm sure he didn't see that red light, although some criticize him for not noticing it, if in fact he didn't. Um, but he put it all aside, and he he made a judgment call, which, of course, is one of the most controversial in boxing history. Um, it's tough to debate. <laughs> yeah, well, it, I have a different perspective on it. And by the way, we recently on the site did a new top 12 list, the top 12 most controversial fights of all time. And Chavez Taylor is in the top five on the list. Uh, I personally feel that, that, that Steele knew. I mean, I don't think there was anything malicious at play in his decision. But I do believe that Steele is a bit of a, uh, you know, he, he's got an ego. And uh, he likes to be in the spotlight. He used to be a fighter. Yeah, yeah. He, he used to Ken Norton in the amateur days. You know, he, he is not, for example, cut from the same cloth as Davy Pearl. Davy Pearl was a referee. You would forget he was there. I mean, you, you would forget. You would in, you'd be watching the fight and, oh, right, yeah, there is a referee there. I mean, Richard Steele wasn't that kind of referee. Richard Steele is... I, when I, when I think of Richard Steele, I, I, I think of uh, how he was would always be yelling at the fighters, and you'd always hear him yelling at the fighters. You could never forget that Richard Steele was in the ring and was part of what was going on. And, He's a big guy, and he'd love to move around. He's very agile. Yes. There. <laughs> yeah. And and I think I I I don't think the the fact that the round was almost over was lost on him. Instead, I think what was happening was he felt at in the moment that he had to make a decision. And what he didn't realize was that wasn't true. He didn't have to make a decision. He didn't. He could have simply wiped off uh, Meldrick Taylor's gloves. He could have asked him to step forward. The bell rings. He, He hasn't made a decision. The fight is over. But I think in the heat of the moment, he felt that it was incumbent on him to render a verdict. On Meldrick Taylor and I think it's a damn shame I, I think you know especially since we now know that Meldrick Taylor suffered a lot for his uh, boxing career yeah um, uh, you, you can't can not I mean that wouldn't change the events that trans uh, transpired later in Taylor's career in his life no 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 but no. as it, Bernie it Fernandez on. says it you know at least he would have his victory yes you know, and, and one of the and, 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 and it's important to point out, it's not as if everything afterwards for Taylor was a tragedy. He went on to win fights. He went on to yeah. win world titles. Um, 
But it's just heartbreaking that that particular great victory, which would have guaranteed him massive paydays uh, afterwards, would have made him a star, yeah. uh, you could argue. Uh, could have made was, a rivalry between him and Chavez. It would have had yes. a definite rematch and well, you know, as, probably a third yes. fight. Yes, as Meldrick Taylor pointed out, I mean, he had to wait how many years for a rematch? Which, Too which long. he lost. Um, yeah. you know, and, and as he pointed out at the time, well, if I'd won, the, re- the rematch would have taken place probably, you know, six months later. Um, and I think he's absolutely correct. Uh, it's just a... I'm, I'm just count me am, among those who feel it's it's a bit of a heartbreaking story, and and it's regrettable. Uh, Steele's decision, in my view, is regrettable, and uh, but all that aside, it was a fantastic fight, and it's important that uh, boxing remember it 30 years later. I can't believe it's 30 years, but 30 years later, everybody should be. Uh, in some way, shape, or form, all fight fans should be saluting one of the great fights in the history of the game. I mean, it's most great fights have a bit of controversy wound into them. You know, I, I mentioned Aaron Pryor and Alexis Arguello being my close second. You know, you had Corrales Castillo with the, with the mouth guard and spitting it out constantly, and some of those circumstances getting the point deducted. You know. Sometimes drama is what makes these fights unforgettable. It just happened to be that the fight already was fought on such a high level, was was such a terrific fight that you know that that piece of controversy at the end, I think, just put it over the edge as being one of the most memorable fights of all time. Uh, and my favorite, just because of the level in which it was fought. You know, I think yeah. it was fought at a much higher level than Corrales Castillo was fought. Uh, nothing against those two fighters. It's just when you're talking about Julio Cesar Chavez, who's one of the greatest of all time, and Meldrick Taylor, who rose to the occasion to be, you know, one of the greats, to, uh, one of the closest fighters to, or the, the closest fighter to come to beating him, um, really, <laughs> at that point yeah. of his career. You know, it's it's just an astonishing performance by both men. Uh, well, and it's and it's always something. It's it's something special when two terrific fighters, two top-level fighters, two gifted boxers meet while they're both at their peak. Not just their prime, but near their near or at their peak. Uh, we were talking about Duran versus Leonard. That was the case in Montreal in 1980. Yep. Both fighters were at their peak. And definitely that was the case in Chavez-Taylor 1. Uh, both fighters at their peak. And Taylor especially was never the same. Uh, after that fight, um, I, I think you can argue that to, to some, to a lesser degree, Chavez was never quite the same either. Um, His greatest victories did come before that. Yeah, he so, went on and won another twenty or so fights before he eventually lost to Frankie Randall, and um, I think the draw with Pernell Whitaker was somewhere in there. But yeah, he was never the same. I think he suffered some back issues towards uh, the latter part of his career that kind of uh threw a wrench into his mobility and he was he was tremendous against Meldrick Taylor. I think a lot of people overlooked it just because of how tremendous Taylor was against Chavez and yes. the fact that people had lesser expectations of Taylor than uh, than they did for Chavez going in because Chavez was the best pound for pound fighter in the world arguably going in. I don't know if there was too much doubt on that front. I mean Yeah, who else and, and, in and, 1990, and, I mean <laughs> Yeah, and and you re- I mean, it gives me the opportunity to point out that while I strongly disagree with Richard Steele's decision, I take nothing away from Julio Cesar Chavez. Um, yeah. It was a fantastic performance, and the way he uh, was able in that last round to to push it and to, and to uh, push his advantage, and then he basically laid a trap for Taylor very cunningly uh, and turned away from the ropes and Taylor never saw the right hand coming and Chavez knew exactly what he was doing. That was a crafty, crafty move to land that big shot at the end that ultimately decided the fight. I take yeah. nothing away from Chavez um, and, and, and in principle, I have no problem with the referee stopping a fight with two seconds left. Um, but in this particular case, 
when you look at it, uh, it's just a it's a hasty stoppage. I don't see how anyone can get around that. In my that's just my opinion. It's a hasty stoppage, and it's a it's a bit tragic. What did you think of uh, Lucien Butte and Labrado Andrade? Whether or not that should have been stopped in very similar circumstances. Well, now that is a whole different, and that's a difficult uh, fight to talk about. Now, oh, I'm trying to remember the name of the referee. Marlon Wright was the referee. Yes, and he has since died, hmm. which is unfortunate. He died from cancer. So the last thing I want to do is, you know, say something disparaging about yeah. him and his performance in that fight. But I'm sorry, that was that was not kosher. I mean, um, uh, that's that's on a whole other level. I mean, uh, definitely that that outcome was controversial, and it deserved to be controversial. And uh, Labrado Andrade, I think, deserved better. And I don't think any objective observer of, of that fight um, can argue otherwise. I mean, yeah. But unlike, it, unlike, unlike, unlike Wright, you know, Richard Steele suffered some real consequences after the Chavez-Taylor fight because he saw himself getting less and less of the big assignments before when he was one of the premier boxing referees in the game you know he really uh i didn't know that really 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 dropped off in activity after that and you know um he had some other controversial events transpire after including mike tyson against razor ruddick that was a questionable stoppage in their first fight but um but yeah it really put his whole career on notice although a lot of people favored his stoppage his decision to stop the Meldrick taylor chavez fight there were still um there's still kind of a black eye from the people that didn't and um you know well let me ask you since 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 you you are in fact a referee i mean that that is just part of the job isn't it i mean and it's not an easy job um damned if you do damned if you don't that's kind of that right. is what it is to be a referee or just an official in general. Um, I mean, the difficult thing is, I don't. It's very tough to think of how fighters at the world class, how officials at the world class level, especially referees, make a career out of it. Because you know, you you can't win them all in terms of uh, the right call to make, and and uh, you're kind of under a microscope for the fights that have some controversy involved in them. So. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a very difficult way to make a living. And, um, of course, there's really a lot of people argue there's no room for error because these guys are risking their lives. And any loss in this day and age is really going to impact them financially, them and their families, and, you know, put themselves at risk of taking more punches and more brain damage before they get another big shot. You know, it's a, it's a tough job. It's, you know, it regardless of uh, yeah, re- regardless of the controversy that we're discussing about Richard Steele and Marlon Wright and some other referees in the past, you know, I do think they get a pretty big shellacking from the media, and you know, it's um, it's unfortunate because you know, at that level, not every call is going to be easy, but you could rest assured that every call is going to be highly scrutinized and there is going to be one camp that goes one way and one camp that goes the other. And it's usually the camp that goes against the referee that has the biggest microphone on social media. So <laughs> that is, uh, yeah, just, it just goes with the job, right? I mean, I, I, I admire, uh, uh, the, the perspective espoused on this by referee Michael Griffin, who's one of the premier referees of recent years and is from the fight city. And, um, uh, his perspective is you got to get it right. And he admits that he doesn't always get it right, but he doesn't cut himself a break. His, his, his ambition is always to try and make the right decision. Hmm. And, um, it's a lot of pressure. I mean, you, you could decide a fighter's career. Um, so, you know, as he expressed it, uh, you have to, you can't forget that, 
and you have to make sure that you uh, get it right. You got to get it right, and you can also decide a fighter's life as well. Yes, yes. Any yes. given night, and That's right. know, unfortunately, Michael Griffin, you know, almost had to live through a tragedy um, in That's the fight true. city. Very sad, but fortunately, um, Adonis Stevenson made a seemingly full recovery. I'm hoping he's doing well. Yes, but, yes. As I understand it, he's he is doing well. So that, that is great news. Yeah, that is. Well, I hope everyone else is doing well as we are in the midst of a global pandemic right now. But thanks for joining us on episode 38 of the Fight City podcast. Thanks for being with me, Michael. This has been a lot of fun. <laughs> a little trip down memory lane. Me, My pleasure. Absolutely. And we will talk to you next time uh, when hopefully live boxing is going on. But uh, <laughs> don't stop crossing your fingers on that anytime soon. So this is Alden Kodash, and uh, have a good night, everyone. All right. So you got that one.